Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. I'm Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and today we will be discussing basic pragmatics concepts as the last introductory episode in our series on Biblical Language Linguistics. So just like in previous episodes, we will start out with a quote that describes the task of pragmatics. So this is from Berner's introductory textbook on pragmatics, and this is what she says. What did they mean by that? It's a relatively common question, and it's precisely the subject of the field of pragmatics. In order to know what someone meant by what they said, it's not enough to know the meaning of the words, semantics, and how they have been strung together into a sentence, syntax. We also need to know who uttered the sentence and in what context, and to be able to make inferences regarding why they said it and what they intended us to understand. There's one piece of pizza left can be understood as an offer, would you like it? Or a warning, it's mine. Or a scolding, you didn't finish your dinner. Depending on the situation, even if the follow-up comments in parentheses are never uttered. People commonly mean quite a lot more than they say explicitly, and it's up to their addressees to figure out what additional meaning might have been intended. A psychiatrist asking a patient, can you express deep grief, would not be taken to be asking the patient to engage in such a display immediately, but a movie director speaking to an actor might well mean exactly that. The literal meaning is a question about an ability. Are you able to do so? The additional meaning is a request. Please do so. That may be inferred in some contexts, but not others. The literal meaning is the domain of semantics. The additional meaning is the domain of pragmatics. From Berner's quote, we can see that pragmatics has more to do with how we communicate than just what words mean, which would be semantics. Of course, words and sentences are part of how we communicate, but as we will see, there's a lot more to communication than just the meaning of words. In our episode on semantics, we ended with truth conditional meaning, and we said that to know the meaning of a sentence is to know what the world would have to be like for it to be true. Semantics and pragmatics has traditionally been divided based on this criterion. If a meaningful element affects truth conditions, then it is said to fall under semantics. If the meaning does not affect truth conditions, it falls under pragmatics. We can use Berner's example, there's one piece of pizza left, in order to illustrate this distinction. The truth conditions for this sentence are straightforward. In order for the sentence to be true, there needs to be one piece of pizza left. If we change the sentence to, there are two pieces of pizza left, then the truth conditions would change. There would then need to be two pieces of pizza left in order for the sentence to be true. However, if we put stress on pizza, so the sentence was, there's one piece of pizza left, then there is an additional inference that we normally make, even though the truth conditions remain the same as the original sentence. There still has to be one piece of pizza left in order for the sentence to be true but we may now actually infer that there is something else available to eat besides pizza. This additional meaning is pragmatic meaning because it is a real inference, but it is distinct from truth conditional meaning. 
While researchers have long recognized that this distinction between truth-conditional and non-truth-conditional meaning is too simplistic, it is a useful starting place for us, and as many other introductory works do, we will assume it to be the basic divide between semantics and pragmatics throughout our discussion. Like the other fields we have discussed, the secondary literature in pragmatics is massive, and there is no way we can do justice to everything that has been said. We will begin with some key terms and concepts, and then we will move to how pragmatics interacts with morphology, syntax, and semantics. The goal in these last sections is to demonstrate the interconnectedness of language. While we cannot specialize in everything, you have to know at least something about the various subdisciplines in linguistics if you are going to do serious linguistic analyses. While we will touch on what are called different interfaces, such as the syntax-pragmatics interface, these interfaces are not unique to the field of pragmatics. There's also a syntax-semantics interface, for example, where people research how syntax and semantics interact, and this is actually my main area of focus. Whatever subdiscipline in lingu linguistics you might be interested in, being familiar with at least the basic terminology in the various subdisciplines will greatly aid your analyses. So the basic key terms that we will start with are conventional and conversational implicatures, speech acts, illocutionary act, and sentential mood, common ground and presupposition, and information structure, where we'll talk about topic and focus. So those four main headings, right? Implicatures, speech acts, common ground, presupposition, and information structure. And we will go into detail in each of those categories. Then we will discuss the morphology pragmatics interface, the syntax pragmatics interface, and the semantics pragmatics interface. And for each of these, I will give an example from Greek or Hebrew that illustrates this interface, which is just how morphology and pragmatics interact, or syntax and pragmatics interact, or semantics and pragmatics interact. So in many introductory textbooks and you know in, in, in an introductory pragmatics course, you would start with implicatures. Implicatures have been highly influential in the field of pragmatics, and there are different ways of doing it. Um, but the basic idea came from Paul Grice. Um, and this is, again, while this is pretty old at this point, this is from 1975, um, this basic fundamental idea still holds in a lot of work in pragmatics. And Grice came up with this um, cooperative principle, which basically is a principle that he says is assumed by interlocutors in a conversation. So this is what he says the cooperative principle is. Make your conversational contribution such as is required at the stage at which it occurs by the accepted purpose or direction of the talk exchange in which you are engaged. Okay, so that statement is called the cooperative principle. And really, it's been broken down into um, four maxims. Okay, and those four maxims have been further broken down into 10. Um, but we're just going to focus on the four for now just to, to be simplistic. But the four are quantity, which is the amount of information, quality, which is the truth of information, relation, which is the relevance of information, and manner, which is how information is conveyed. So the idea here 
is that what Grice is saying is people, when they engage in conversation, they expect you to follow these rules, right? That you would give the appropriate amount of information, that you would speak the truth um, and, and insofar as you know it, that you would speak relevantly and that you would speak in a way that makes sense, right? Um, or you would convey the information in a way that makes sense, okay? So the idea here is that we, in normal communication, implicitly hold to these maxims. So this is what gives rise to implicatures. So we'll just define a conversational implicature as an inference made based on the specific context in which the statement is made, but which may be canceled. And if you remember from the semantics episode, if you watched that or listened to it, we contrasted implicature with entailment. An entailment is something that always held, um, but an implicature is something that may be canceled in the context. And specifically, this is actually true of a conversational implicature, right? So this is an inference that arises based on the context in which it is used. So we also have conventional implicatures, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. And this is a non-truth conditional aspect of meaning. So this is similar to entailment in that it should always hold, but it's not truth conditional. And in that sense, it's different than an entailment. Okay, but we're going to focus more on conversational implicatures. So the idea here is that we make real inferences based on how something is said. So it would be wrong to interpret language without these inferences. So I'll give an example. Um, a very, very common one is called a scalar implicature. So if I said some of the kids went to the park, you would make the inference that not all kids went to the park, even though the semantics of some really only requires, you know, let's say two or more kids to go to the park. And it doesn't mean that all kids didn't go, right? But we have this inference. Again, you know, we, we can have the same thing with most of the kids went to the park. Most semantically, for to give a semantic representation or definition of that, is just that more than half of the kids went to the park. So if we have four kids and three went to the park, that would be most. But four out of four is also most, right? It's more than half. But for whatever reason, when we say most of the kids went to the park, we draw this inference of not all kids went to the park. The idea here is that Grice explains this extra inference as a, an implicature that holds because we are assuming that whoever says most kids went to the park is being um, is holding to the principle of quantity. The amount of information given is as informative as it should be, right? If we said all the kids went to the park, that's more informative than just most, right? So when we say most, we draw this inference of not all, because we would say, well, if you wanted to say all, you could have said all. So that's how this inference arises from the maximum of quantity. You didn't provide that extra information that all went to the park. So I assume that that's not true. And another example here, um, maxims may be flouted to convey additional information. So an example of this is Elijah's use of sarcasm in 1 Kings 18.27. Um, so, you know, Elijah says, oh, the prophets of Baal, 
you know, maybe Bale is going to the bathroom or whatever. Um, and he says all of these different things that Baal might be doing. Elijah knows that this is not true. And the, the prophets of Baal know that it's not true or that Elijah thinks it's not true. So here, Elijah is flouting the maxim of quality. He's saying something that he knows not to be true and that he knows his addressees knows he knows isn't true in order to make fun of them, right? And so this is how these things work, right? We, we know that people are holding to this cooperative principle implicitly. And so we can play with these maxims and we can say something that we know isn't true for a rhetorical effect, right? In this case, it's, it's different than just saying, oh, your God's not listening. So not only is Elijah saying that Baal is not listening, he's also saying that it's ridiculous, right, what you're doing. <laughs> and so that extra information is is added by flouting the maximum of, of quality. So those are just some conversational implicatures. Conversational implicatures are, are very, very common. Um, and there are all kinds of inferences we make all the time. And um, I would just encourage you, if you're interested in this, um, study Grice's maxims. And like I said, there's been a lot of work since then on how exactly these implicatures arise and what they mean, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I do want to touch on conventional implicature. So this is a, again, a non-truth conditional aspect of meaning. So this is going to be constant regardless of the context. Um, so it's not going to be cancelable like a conversational implicature, but it's not going to affect truth conditions. So the prototypical example of this is the word but. Um, if I said the kids want to go outside and it is raining, both the, the kids want to go outside and it is raining might be true. And then if I said but instead of and, if I said the kids want to go outside but it is raining, um, we have a different meaning, right, with but. It's, it's, it has a different meaning than and. But it doesn't affect whether the two propositions are true. The kids still want to go outside and the, it is still raining, right? So whether I use and or but is not actually going to affect whether the two propositions that are connected are true or not, right? Even though and and but have different meanings. So whatever meaning we apply to these conjunctions, right? Specifically, but some sort of contrastive meaning that is going to be a conventional implicature because it doesn't affect the truth conditions of the two propositions it connects. So now let's talk about speech acts, elocutionary acts, and sentential mood. And again, here we are just scratching the surface, hardly scratching the surface on all the work that's been done. Um, but I do want to, to touch on um, these ideas. Speech acts... Um, were popularized by Searle and elocutionary acts, locutionary acts, perlocutionary acts, popularized by um, Austin. So again, we will provide these references in the in the notes. But and this is actually you know a field that has um, or these concepts have been incorporated into biblical studies somewhat. Some people talk about speech acts um, and these kinds of things within linguistics. It's it's elocutionary act that is has really gotten the most attention because it's it's very, very common. So let's just define speech act first. Um, speech act, we can say, is the action performed when an utterance is made. 
For example, you can make a statement, you can ask a question, you can give a command. Okay? An elocutionary act is the act that the speaker is intending to perform when making the utterance. Okay, so there's a there is an action that's performed, right? And there's the elocutionary act of the what the speaker is intending to perform. And then we have sentential mood or force. This is the prototypical act associated with the sentence type. So for example, declaratives, you make a statement. For an interrogative, you ask a question. For an imperative, you give a command. So the key point here is the elocutionary act, what's being intended, may not always align with the sentential force of the utterance. Okay, so let me explain this with an example. So if I said, I want pizza, that is a declarative sentence, right? And it's making a statement about my desires. It's not a command. It's not a question. It's a statement about my desires. If I say, can you give me another slice of pizza? That is a question. It is not a statement about my desires anymore. It's not a command. It's just a question, right, about the world. Um, give me another slice of pizza is an imperative. So it's a command. It's not a question, not a statement. So here we have three different sentence types. And they are they're prototypically associated with different speech acts, right? So I want pizza, the sentence form is associated with the type of speech act of making a statement. However, in a certain context, I can say I want pizza to intend something different, namely give me a piece of pizza, right? I can intend that statement, even though it's not a command, to be a command in a certain context. The same thing with, you know, a more polite way to, to say the command, can you give me another slice of pizza? That is a question. And even though questions aren't commands, if I say it in the right context, you will understand it to mean, please give me a piece of pizza, right? To be a command. So the elocutionary act doesn't have to match the speech act that is associated with the sentence type, right? And we there's misalignments between this all the time, um, if you just notice it in language. And it's, it's very interesting to see how we use different sentence types and how that interfaces with the act that the speaker is intending to perform. You know, in, in text, for example, we can't always know what the speaker is intending to perform, so that gets trickier. Um, what we do have is a sentence type, right? So we do have, you know, whatever, it's a declarative, interrogative, imperative, um, normally, right? Because it's normally marked on the verb or something like that, um, or indicated syntactically. But we don't always know what the speaker is intending to perform with that act, right? And, and so that's where it gets tricky. And that's, that's where really the fun comes in, trying to figure out what the speaker is trying to do with that particular sentence. So again, this is scratching the surface. Um, if you are interested in this, look at the notes, look at the, uh, the references there. Let's move on to common ground and presupposition. Once again, this is just a, a huge, huge field. So we will define common ground as the set of propositions that both interlocutors accept as true. And 
presupposition is to assume the truth of a proposition and to assume that the addressee will also assume it. Okay, so if I'm if I am presupposing something, I'm assuming something is true, and I also think that the addressee will assume it's true. And then an assertion is content that is put forward by a speaker to be added to the common ground. Okay, so why are we talking about this? The idea is that information is organized and asserted or presupposed based on what we think the addressee, addressee will easily accommodate or not. Okay, so that's a mouthful. Let's look at an, a real life example of this. Okay, this is from Krifka, 2007. Um, he has a, a paper, Basic Notions of Information Structure, highly recommended. I think he provides a lot of clarity on a lot of the terms that are often debated. So here are his examples. He says, one of his examples, I have a cat and I had to bring my cat to the vet. Okay, so that sentence is fine. However, this sentence sounds odd. If I say, I had to bring my cat to the vet and I have a cat. So why is this sentence odd or this string of um, clauses? So I had to bring my cat to the vet presupposes that I have a cat. So when I say my cat, right, even if I haven't told the addressee and the addressee didn't previously know that I had a cat, when I say I had to bring my cat to the vet, there's a presupposition that I have a cat. And because of that presupposition, it's weird to say I had to bring my cat to the vet and I have a cat, right? All you have to say is I had to bring my cat to the vet and the addressee will will suppose, oh, okay, you must have a cat. And when, when we say these kinds of things, we just assume that the addressee will accept that presupposition. We don't have to spell out, oh, first I have a cat and then I had to bring it to the vet. Um, we, we just assume that when we say I had to bring my cat to the vet, even if the addressee didn't previously know that I had a cat, they will just what what's called accommodate that presupposition, right? They will assume it and add it to the common ground, right? That's the idea. But we don't always do this, right? We don't always just accept um, presuppositions and add it to the common ground at will. So if I said I had to bring my cat to the vet because it was sick, no problem. If I said I had to bring my gorilla to the vet because it was sick, all of a sudden that sentence is very odd, right? Because to, to lead with that, the, the the person that you're saying that to would say, wait, you have a pet gorilla, right? That would be the the question, right? They would they would question that presupposition. They wouldn't question the the cat presupposition because it's very normal to have cats, right? But if I said I had to bring my gorilla to the vet, there is still a presupposition that I have a gorilla. But that presupposition is harder to accommodate for most people, right? Because most people aren't running around with pet gorillas. So the idea here is that this is going to affect the way we organize this information. In order to talk about bringing my pet gorilla to the vet because it was sick, I would probably have to lead with, I have a pet gorilla. And then I probably have to give some sort of big long story about why I have a pet gorilla. And then I would have to say, and I had to bring him to the vet because he was sick. That is going to organize the entire discourse, right? The fact that 
we will easily accommodate the presupposition of I have a cat and not so easily accommodate the presupposition of I have a gorilla will lead us to structure the discourse in a different way. So that is presupposition and how it affects information structure. Another huge topic is that presupposition still holds under negation. This is called projection, presupposition projection. We can see this in examples like Susie knows that her husband is returning. So in this case, the word know is it's a special verb. It's called a factive. And it's actually contrasted with something like believe. So if I said, Susie knows that her husband is returning today, you assume that her husband is actually returning today. If I said, Susie believes that her husband is returning today, you don't necessarily assume that it's true that her husband is returning today. So that's that's very interesting, right? All we did is change no to believe. And that inference that, that the complement clause holds that it is actually true or not, right, is gone once we switch from no to believe. What's interesting is that when we negate no, so, and when I say Susie doesn't know that her husband is returning today, that inference still holds, right? The presupposition that that complement clause, her husband is returning today, is true, that presupposition still holds even when we negate no, right? Susie doesn't know that her husband is returning today. We conclude that her husband is indeed returning today. It's just that she doesn't know it, right? This is what's interesting about presupposition. Negation doesn't affect the truth of a presupposition, even though negation normally does affect the truth of other elements like entailments. And again, the same doesn't hold for believe. Susie doesn't believe that her husband is returning today. Um, you know, just like with without the negation of believe, we don't get the inference that her husband is indeed returning today. So this is a very interesting phenomenon. Um, lots of things, there are lots of structures that we have presuppositions with. Um, and so this is very interesting that even under negation, it still holds and it's not affected by the negation. Again, massive literature on this. So now we'll talk about information structure, specifically topic and focus. This is a really big issue, especially within um, biblical studies, biblical language linguistics, because people um, do talk about topic and focus, but it's they're often defined in a pretty fuzzy way. And to be fair, this is somewhat true in the literature as well, in the linguistics literature. We're going to follow Krifka here. For the most part, I have a definition of topic from Lambrecht, but they, they basically say the same thing. I th again, I think Krifka provides a lot of clarity on what these kinds of notions are, um, information structure notions. So this is how he begins with um, what information structure actually is. He says, it's a phenomenon of information packaging that responds to the immediate communicative needs of interlocutors. Okay, so it's how we package information based on what we think the addressee knows or doesn't know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we've we've touched on this before, right? Presupposition. I will assume that someone will accommodate some presuppositions, and I won't assume that they will accommodate other presuppositions. So that's information structure in general. T 
topic, this is a definition from Lambrecht, is defined as the topic of a sentence is the thing which the proposition expressed by the sentence is about. So we will we will look at a, an example of this. Focus indicates the presence of alternatives that are relevant for the interpretation of linguistic expressions. So focus is all about alternatives. Topic is all about what the sentence is about. And again, the, the important thing with that is defining what about means. Um, focus, presence of alternatives. And then there's frame setting. So I include frame setting here because it's sometimes called topic. Um, and so we need to distinguish between, you know, if, if you're going to call this topic, this kind of topic and the other kind of topic. So we're going to call it frame setting. Um, but but again, you would need to be explicit about your definition of, of this and how it differs from topic. So he says, frame setting is used to limit the applicability of the main predication to a certain restricted domain. So now let's look at some examples of how this works. So let's let's go back to, to focus. As an illustration of focus, we can look at different ways to say the same sentence. So the sentence is, my daughter wants pizza. So I'm just in the mood for pizza today, um, or at least my daughter is. So here we have a sentence, right? My daughter wants pizza, very straightforward. As soon as I start to stress different elements of the sentence, different alternatives come up, right? So if I said, my daughter wants pizza, my daughter, if I stress my, all of a sudden you get the inference that it's mine and not yours. And so an alternative to my comes up in your mind, right? And you negate that alternative. If I said, my daughter wants pizza, then again, a different alternative comes up. So it might be my son. So not 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 my son, but my daughter wants pizza. If I put stress on wants, as in my daughter wants pizza, I'm again, a different alternative comes up. Maybe my daughter wants pizza, but doesn't need pizza. Again, we negate that alternative. And then finally, my daughter wants pizza and not something else. That's the idea. So how we, so this is how focus works in English, or at least one way that focus works in English. Focus can be marked in different ways and there's different things that it does um, when it's marked in different ways. But the, the point here is that what we're doing when we're focusing something is we are, we are saying that whatever element is being focused, it's that element and not other elements. And so, again, if I just said my daughter wants pizza, we have no inference that she doesn't want cake as well, right? Um, she might also want cake. It, when I, but when I put stress on pizza, my daughter wants pizza, then we do have this inference that whatever other salient piece of food in the context is there, she doesn't want that. Focus, then, is the negation of alternatives. And what whatever element is being focused, the similar alternatives that might go in that slot are negated. Again, this can be done in different ways. So some languages uh, have a focused position by moving it to the front of the clause, in which case we might say, pizza my daughter wants, and where 
pizza would be focused by virtue of being in the front of the clause. So there are different ways that this is marked in actual language, but either way, the, semant the basic semantic analysis is the negation of alternatives. Next topic. So this is, again, a really, a really tough issue because some people, the way its topic is defined is that it's very close to subject. And, and the way that we define it is very close to subject, right? The grammatical subject. So we said it's what the information or what the sentence is about. So here is an example from, from Krifka, 2007. Um, he says that these two sentences differ based on topic, and that's it. So he says, Aristotle Onesis married Jacqueline Kennedy versus Jacqueline Kennedy married Aristotle Onesis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But the idea here is that these sentences, because so the word marry is... Um, a reciprocal verb. So both participants do the same thing. They both marry. But one sentence is about Aristotle and the other sentence is about Jacqueline. So whenever the participant is in the subject position, we interpret that as the topic, right? We, we are thinking when we say Aristotle married Jacqueline, we are thinking of something that Aristotle did. We, when we say Jacqueline married Aristotle, we are thinking of something that Jacqueline did. And so the question, right, is not who participated, but it's in the discourse, who are we talking about? Either Aristotle or Jacqueline. So the, the key here is that because subjects are often topics and they are very hard to distinguish, whether we put a you know topic position in the syntax and we say that there's movement because of topic, it will affect how we analyze certain constructions. So if we define topic in this way, which is fine to do, um, then what's going to happen is the subject will almost always be the topic. And then when we see certain word orders and we say, oh, this has been fronted for topic. Well, maybe. The problem with saying that is if our semantics of topic or our pragmatic meaning of topic is very close to subject, then it could be in the initial position because of being a topic, or it could just be because it's a subject. And then it's very hard to distinguish between whether it's pragmatically marked or not. That's the issue. So this is a, you know, a huge topic, no pun intended, um, within linguistics, and it's a huge topic within biblical language studies, especially on word order. And we'll discuss this a little bit more later on. But the question of you know, whether something is a topic and how to distinguish that from subjects and whether there is a syntactic position for topics that's distinct from subjects. Those are all kind of open-ended questions right now in, in especially word order in, in Hebrew and Greek. So next we have frame setting. So frame setting is not topic. Whatever term you want to use, topic two or whatever, it's not the same thing as what we've defined as topic. So an example is, in terms of what my daughter wants, she wants pizza, or she always wants pizza. So this frame setting is, is this initial clause, right? In terms of what my daughter wants. So that sort of delimits the what we're talking about, right? We're only talking about this right now, and this is the proposition um, that's true in this domain. 
this is in, in biblical Hebrew linguistics, commonly called casus pendens. And this is found quite commonly in biblical Hebrew. You move whatever element to the front of the sentence, and that's that's how it works, right? And you in in English, you have this intonation in terms of what my daughter wants, comma, we have this pause. This is very common for um, how frame setting works. Again, the point here is that this is a distinct notion from topic. At this point, I want to move to talk about morphology and pragmatics and how these interface. The morphology pragmatics interface we can define as the interaction between pragmatic meaning and the form of words. So here we will be looking at some Greek and Hebrew examples. I have an example from Genesis 1-3, very famous, Yehi or vayhi or, let there be light, and there was light. So what's interesting about Yehi is that it is a morpheme that marks at least some pragmatic meaning. It's, it's adjustive, you know, very similar to like an optative mood. Morphemes, the point here, may mark certain pragmatic meanings. So the pragmatic meaning here is a certain kind of mood, right? We, we talked about this with sentential force, that there are prototypical things we do with certain sentence types. So yehi or is different than vaihi or precisely in this way. Vaihi or is a statement about, um, it's, it's a declarative statement about what happened, light came to be. Whereas yehi or is a, people say it's a desire or a wish, a command, right? Something like that. But you can see that there's a formal difference. There's a form, right? A certain morphological form that is indicating a difference in sentence type, which is the field of, has to do at least with the field of pragmatics. Also semantics, depending on how you define sentence mood and also syntax. So the, and this is very common in verbs, right? We have different moods of verbs. Those different moods are going to have different pragmatic meanings because they're going to have different sentence types associated with them. And then those sentence types are going to have certain speech acts associated with them, right? Certain prototypical speech acts. Again, we can do something different with those sentence forms, but the form itself is going to have a prototypical speech act. Make a statement, ask a question, give a command, right? In this case, it's it's like a command, right? Yehi or, let there be light, is how we do it in English. And this is baked into the morphology of, of Hebrew and in Greek as well. So now we'll talk about the syntax pragmatics interface. So the syntax pragmatics interface we, we touched on last week, we talked about the Cowper and Decane's work on the left periphery, all of the stuff in, you know, the to the left of the subject. And they actually have two spots for a topic. They have a, a low topic and a high topic. The low topic is the the topic that we discussed, the that aboutness thing. Um, and the high topic is the, the frame setting, okay? So here we have an example from Ruth 417. And I just want to show you how, in particular, um, the pragmatic meanings can affect word order or not. 
Okay, and at least in the literature, how it's claimed that pragmatic meanings affect word order. In Ruth 4.17, it says, Yulad ben le Naomi. Now, let me just give Homestead's explanation of this. So Homestead wrote a paper in 2009 on information structure in Ruth and Jonah. Um, and this is what he says. He says, in contrast, within the SV framework. So to put this into context, Homestead is arguing for a basic subject-verb order. And the idea is that um, subject-verb is pragmatically neutral and verb-subject is not pragmatically neutral. By pragmatically neutral, we mean that it has no special pragmatic meaning. And so the idea is that what Homestead says is that elements can be fronted for topic or focus. Um, and when that happens, there is some extra pragmatic meaning associated with it, okay? So this is what he says. He says, in contrast, within the SV framework developed in this study, a few SV clauses may actually be basic and thus pragmatically neutral. But any VS clause without a syntactic or semantic trigger must contain a topic or focus operator. Here, here's what I want to, I, I, I don't want to say Homestead is right or wrong here. I want to talk about the logic involved. So the logic is that if, if I have a VS clause, then that clause has to be there for really one of three reasons. Either the, the verb is, has moved to the initial position because of a syntactic trigger. That's one reason. The verb has moved to the initial position because of a semantic trigger. Or the verb has moved to the initial position because of a pragmatic trigger. And he says, this is topic or focus. So he uses this example, Yulad Ben Le Naomi, to say there is no semantic trigger. There's no syntactic trigger. Therefore, Yulad must be topic or focus. Must be pragmatically marked in some way. So that's, that's the, the, the logic he uses. And he then goes on to explain in the next paragraph why, you know, Yulad in this context makes sense to be pragmatically marked. I don't really want to get into that. What I do want to point out is how we assume um, clauses will be marked or unmarked will affect the order of the sentence. So, for example... If I assume that this sentence is syntactically neutral, if I assume that this is a syntactically neutral sentence and SV is the basic order, then I have to have some sort of semantic or pragmatic reason for seeing VS. So in this case, I mean, personally, I would say that ULAD is, is not syntactically neutral, right? Because it's passive voice and passive voice does all kinds of special things with word order. But but the, the point here is that whatever you fit in that bucket of syntactic trigger or whatever you fit, whatever you fit in the bucket of semantic trigger or the bucket of pragmatic trigger is going to affect how you analyze these kinds of clauses. If I don't have category for saying, well, passive voice affects movement, passive voice might be a syntactic trigger that moves the verb to subject or to the initial position or really allows the subject to stay 
in a lower position after the verb, then then I would have to conclude, right, that there's some other reason for this order, namely topic or focus, right? If I don't have that option in my, you know, bucket of syntactic movement, then then I'm going to come up with some other reason for this order. And this is what happens all the time, right? And, and this is my point here, is, is that our theory is going to often determine our analysis because we we have to we, if we want to be consistent we have to either come up with an explanation for this or just say well we don't know right and and honestly that that's a good answer sometimes um but but the idea here is just what i want to point out is that we have to be careful about what might be causing variations in word order right it could be syntax it could be semantics it could be pragmatics if you don't have all those um, tools in your toolbox, then you're going to assume it's one. And you might be wrong because all three of those are going to affect word order. The issue here is that topic and focus are are genuine things that affect word order. They are. Um, there are other things that affect word order that have to be taken into account because the order you see on the surface might be because of topic and focus or it might be because of some syntactic element or some semantic element that's changing the order. There's also, you know, phonological reasons. Sometimes we, we talk about phonological weight. So phonological weight, how just how many syllables is in a certain phrase will affect the word order. So all of these things have to be taken into account um, in order for us to, to analyze the data in a way that's consistent with what the author might have intended just because if we don't right if we don't take all those things into account we might just put in an analysis that fits our theory but doesn't necessarily fit the data that being all that being said there are certainly syntactic positions that are associated with pragmatic meanings there is a topic and a focus right position in certain languages um so the question then for us in greek and hebrew is can we find clear examples where, you know, there is a a topic or a focus, what is the order in those sentences? And then we have to strip away, you know, the, the syntactic and semantic triggers that might be there, right? We have to find the kinds of examples where it's clear that there's topic or focus, again, depending on how we define that, right, will affect what we find. Um, but then we have to find those examples where there is also not a syntactic or semantic reason for that order, right? And that's honestly very, very tricky. It's very tricky to find these kinds of examples. I say all that um, just to encourage us to be careful and to, I mean, this is why we're doing this series to introduce you to the kinds of things that you should know to do linguistic analyses. So last we come to the semantics and pragmatics interface. So this is one that's, it's, a little bit different. I define the inter the semantics pragmatics interface as the interaction between semantic truth conditional and pragmatic non truth conditional meaning. So the the example I have touches on issues of uh, form criticism and those kinds of things, but it's a very interesting example because people have explained the phenomenon that we're about to talk about as a scalar implicature. Okay, so this is 
the variation in who is at the tomb or who goes to the tomb in the morning um, when Jesus rises from the dead. So Matthew 28, 1, I'll just read this in Greek and then translate really quickly. Elthen Mariam he Magdalene kaihe alle Maria theoresai ton tafon. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went or came to see the tomb. Okay, and then we have just so Matthew 28, 1. Mark 16, 1. Maria he Magdalene kai Maria he tu Iacobu kai Salome erchontai epito mnemeon. Okay, so here we have three participants, right? In Matthew 28, 1, we had two. We had um, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. In Mark 16, 1, we have Mary Magdalene, Mary of Jacob, and Salome. And they go to see the tomb, or they come upon the tomb. And then John 21, um, 20, verse 1, we have Maria he Magdalene, erketai proi scotias eti uses esto meon. Here we have only one participant. Mary Magdalene comes early in the morning while it's still dark to the tomb. So what's interesting about this is what people have said. The explanation is, well, if I say Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, it doesn't mean that the other Mary or Salome didn't go. It just means that she went. So this is exactly a scalar implicature. When I say Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, I make the inference that other people didn't go because I assume that you are being as informative as necessary. Now, the key here is what is as informative as necessary? So this is, and this is, I don't want to say that this explanation is necessarily wrong. What I do want to say is this is a real inference that we make. We, in semantically, if I say Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, in theory, that doesn't exclude the possibility that all of Galilee went to the tomb. But I infer that all of Galilee did not go to the tomb because you didn't say that. So back to Grice's cooperative principle, it's not as informative to just say Mary Magdalene went to the tomb if all of Galilee actually went there, right? It might be significant to mention that there's a whole crowd of people with her besides her. Now, there might be other reasons in the discourse why you might not mention other women. So it's interesting that in Matthew 28, for example, you know, you have Mary Magdalene and then you have the other Mary went to see the tomb. So the other Mary, clearly we are supposed to know who that other Mary is. So, so these are two characters that Matthew presents as, hey, you know these people, they went to see the tomb. So it could be that Salome was left off in Matthew 28 because you don't know Salome and we don't really care about Salome in this case, right? For whatever reason, we, we, we're just going to talk about the people that we've already mentioned in, in the story. I haven't mentioned Salome. I'm not going to bring her up here, right? That could be an explanation. But that, that has to be rooted in the text um, because the scalar implicature really is real. I, I really do assume that other people didn't go to the tomb. So, so uh, again, the, the John 20 example, we can, we can explain in a similar way. The, the rest of that chapter um, actually does highlight Mary Magdalene in, in, in a pretty unique way. 
So, you know, for example, um, after the disciples come, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. There's no mention of any interaction with another Mary. Um, so, so you know, there there does seem to be some something special about Mary Magdalene in John 20, right, in that chapter as the topic of that chapter, or at least a an important participant. So that would be an explanation for why the the author wasn't as informative as he should have been. But but the issue is you do have to explain why John wouldn't be as informative as he should be, right? Why in this context he is less informative. That is just one example, right, of how people use the idea of implicatures within biblical studies. So let's just recap. Um, we've talked about some key terms here. We've talked about con- conventional and conversational implicatures, speech acts, elocutionary acts, and sentential mood. We talked about common ground and presupposition and information structure, topic, and focus. And then we talked about um, different interfaces, how morphology and pragmatics interface, how syntax and pragmatics interface, and how semantics and pragmatics interface. And for each of these interfaces, we looked at some Greek and Hebrew examples, and we touched on how people use pragmatics or syntax or semantics uh, to explain certain phenomena. At this point, let's just return to the question or the task of pragmatics. Berner says, what did they mean by that? It's a relatively common question, and it's precisely the subject of the field of pragmatics. In order to know what someone meant by what they said, it's not enough to know the meaning of the words, semantics, and how they have been strung together into a sentence, syntax. We also need to know who uttered the sentence and in what context, and to be able to make inferences regarding why they said it and what they intended us to understand. In this episode, we focused on pragmatics, or how language is used to convey meanings that are not truth conditional. We looked at some key terms and concepts in the field of pragmatics. First, we talked about implicatures, which are inferences that are not truth conditional. Conversational implicatures arise from the context of use by virtue of participants accepting Grice's maxims found in the cooperative principle, and Conventional implicatures are associated with the meaning of certain words or morphemes, but they're not truth-conditional meanings. Next, we moved on to speech acts, elocutionary acts, and sentential mood. We said that speaking also involves doing, and there are certain prototypical actions that we do with sentence forms, which we call sentential mood. For example, the interrogative mood is prototypically used to ask a question, though we also saw that the intended act the elocutionary act, may or may not coincide with the prototypical act associated with the form of the sentence. Our third topic was common ground and presupposition. We saw that the common ground is the set of propositions accepted by the interlocutors, and presuppositions and assertions help to organize how information is structured in discourse. Finally, we looked at information structure focusing mainly on topic and focus. We define topic as the thing that the sentence is about, and we specifically said that this is not the same as frame setting, though that is also sometimes called topic in the literature. Focus, on the other hand, was a way to negate different sets of alternatives. 
To wrap up these introductory episodes on biblical language linguistics, we touched on how pragmatics interfaces with morphology, syntax, and semantics. This was to illustrate that these four subdisciplines in linguistics are interrelated, and the correct explanation for a given phenomenon in language may involve concepts in some or all of these domains. For example, if we are looking strictly at syntax, we may not have a reason for a form like adjective being in the initial position in the sentence. We may use vague language to say that it is highlighted or emphasized, for example, when in reality, the initial position of the adjective occupies a syntactic slot that we can provide a well-defined meaning for with the tools we have developed, namely a pragmatic meaning indicating some sort of sentential mood or force. The problem is that our explanations are always constrained by the limits of our own theories and frameworks. And without being familiar with the variety of concepts found in these related fields, our explanations often become too simplistic or vague. I hope that through these episodes, you have begun to see some of the concepts necessary for solid linguistic analysis, so that ultimately you can have a better understanding of the biblical languages and a firmer grasp on the truths that God has conveyed through them. That's all we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages podcast. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining me, and I hope you enjoyed the episode.